Acts chapter 4 is where we're at today. We're walking through the book of Acts, and we are going to be looking at 31 verses out of Acts this morning. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. And uh, my clock here says it's 816. I don't think that time's right. What time is it? 1116? All right, so the 16 is correct. All right, just want to watch the time there. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. Follow along in your Bible as I read. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and all who were in the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today, consider a good deed done to a, uh, concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. By what means has this man been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them. It is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of all the people. For for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly... In this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you appointed both 
Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders perform through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Father, we come before you this morning reading your word, recognizing that this is your word. God, use this word to speak to us this morning, edify us, encourage us, strengthen us. I pray that you would convert the lost, convict the wandering, comfort the weak. God, give me help as I speak. I pray that I would communicate your truth, not my ideas. Give us ears to hear, a heart to receive. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the year 364, Valens was made emperor of Rome. By this time, Christianity had been made the dominant state religion of Rome. However, Valens, while he considered himself a Christian, stood in opposition to the Christian faith. He considered himself a Christian, yet he opposed a man named Athanasius. Mike, you know who Athanasius is? You better. He named his son Athanasius. Why? Because Athanasius was a strong theologian who articulated the fact that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Valens disagreed. He said Jesus was not God. And he stood with the opposition and he began to threaten and then began to treat Athanasius very poorly. Don't ever think that Christian orthodoxy was forged out of ease. Even after the Nicene Creed, they were being persecuted by so-called Christians. Well, a man named Eusebius took the case of uh, uh, Athanasius, and he said, yo, you are treating my friend poorly. And he began to speak out against what Valens was doing to Athanasius. And then as a result, Eusebius came under the, uh, uh, the power of Rome as the Roman emperor now turned on Eusebius. He began to uh, threaten Eusebius with the confiscation uh, 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 of his goods, torture, banishment, and even his death if he didn't stop talking about the gospel, what we would call the gospel. Well, Eusebius replied famously to Emperor Valens. And he said this, he says, The one who has nothing to lose does not need to fear loss nor banishment since heaven is his home, nor torture since his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death since death will set him free from sin and sorrow. I want to speak to you this morning on this topic, bold loyalty. Bold loyalty. In Acts chapter 4, we see the first persecution against the early church come. Quick recap, previous chapter, a lame man was healed by Peter and John. 
It's a sign of confirmation that the word of Christ is coming through them. And they then preach the gospel. And it tells us in verse 4 that at the end of their gospel proclamation, their number grows from 120 to 3,000 on Pentecost, now to 5,000 people. Now, Rome, Rome, the empire of Rome, of which Israel was kind of part of at the time, Rome was considered to be a very tolerant society. But there was something that Rome didn't like, and that was disorder. Now, with 5,000 people coming around this teaching, they're not just coming around a man healed, they're coming around the name proclaimed of a man that Rome had put to death. This teaching is done in whose name? In the name of Christ. Jesus was seen to be someone of disorder. Someone that they believed, they feared would create an uprising and so they killed him. Now there are 5,000 people after his death by Rome. There are 5,000 people gathering around his name. This is about to bring persecution on the church. And the first bit of it is right here. In verse 2, we see that the priests, the captain of the temple, that would be the Roman police that are set at the temple to create order, to keep order. The captain, the Sadducees, a certain class within the Jews, it says that they were greatly annoyed. We're told that they came up on them. That word came up on them it has an element of surprise attached to it. It's, it's almost as if they snuck up on them. They didn't see them coming. They were in the crowd. They were observing. They were greatly annoyed. And then they gave the signal. And all of a sudden, before you know it, Peter and John have been arrested and thrown into prison. Now, while this is the first persecution in Acts, you have to know that the first readers of Acts were very familiar with persecution. This was written in the time of persecution. Another emperor, Nero, had taken power and was beginning to persecute Christians right around the same time Acts was written. Nero was a man who murdered his mother. He murdered his wife. And when Nero turned his attention on the church, it was the first state-sponsored uh, terrorism against the church. He hunted down Christians, sacrificed them, threw them to the lions, burned them at the stake, tortured them. Many of the Christians that we're about to read about in Acts died under the persecution of Nero. They were very familiar with persecution. This was written in the midst of persecution. Thirty years after Nero was a man named Domitian, around 90 A.D., he persecuted the church as well through uh, St. John onto the island of Patmos. Sometime after that, Emperor Trajan, 98, loved throwing Christians to wild animals and burning them at the stake. From 161 to 180, Marcus Aurelius persecuted Christians. From 202 to 211, Septimius Severus persecuted Christians. In the year 235, Emperor Maximus persecuted Christians. 
From 249 to 251, Decius persecuted Christians. From 303 to 311, Diocletian was perhaps the most vicious of all persecutions against the Christians. My point is this, is as Christianity grew, it was not because of ease. As Christianity spread, it was not because of ease. As Christianity was birthed over the first few centuries, it was not because of ease. Christianity did not come out of ease, but out of blood. Persecution. Persecution is to cause suffering or grief or punishment because of one's faith. Now, today, you know that there are some Christians out there that try to get persecuted. You know those type? Like, they love the idea of persecution. And so they try to be as mean-spirited and judgmental as possible just to bring it on. While others, in the name of Christ, try to avoid all persecution. And they end up spineless. Loved by the world. Look, as citizens of the kingdom, we don't, either, we don't try to get persecuted and we don't try to avoid persecution. As citizens of the kingdom, we stand with Jesus. And where the world hates Jesus, they're going to hate us. Therefore, persecution is inevitable in this world. Sometimes it's open. The dates I gave you were open seasons of persecution against the church, but oftentimes, and I think in our own society, persecution is much more subtle. It can happen with a friend a spouse, a group of people on social media. You're unable to get a job because of something that you believe or said. You lose a job. You're afraid you might lose a job. While persecution currently is subtle, it's possible. I'm not like an alarmist. It's possible the heat's turning up. And that open persecution could come against the church, against Christians. Whether subtle or whether open church, we've got to be people of bold loyalty as we proclaim Jesus Christ. When you proclaim Christ, even if it's just in the rejection of the individual to whom you just proclaimed the message, it's possible you're going to receive persecution. Bold loyalty. The next day, Peter and John are brought out to be put on trial. Now, their hearts must have started beating a little quicker when they saw who the judge was. You notice it tells us that they stand before, in verse 6, Annas and Caiaphas. Does anybody remember from Luke when we saw Annas? And Caiaphas, come on somebody, Jesus, trial before Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest who condemned Jesus to death. Who else was in the courtyard that day that Jesus was condemned to death that night, I should say? Wasn't it Peter? Peter's seen Annas and Caiaphas. He knows what they did to Jesus. And that night, when Jesus was condemned before the high priest, Peter wasn't ready for persecution. And so what did he do? 
he denied Jesus and ran as his Savior was put on the tree. Listen, that same Peter is standing in likely the same courtyard in which he denied Jesus, and he is about to throw down with bold loyalty before Annas and Caiaphas. Oh, something's changed in this man. He believes. We're going to see where his bold loyalty comes from as they ask him in verse 7, by what power or by what name do you do this? And in verses 8 through 13, he just tells them like, Jesus, like put it all together, church. It hasn't been that long since they crucified him. And he says, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus. What's amazing is that the leaders do not respond with repentance, but they respond with seeking to silence the name of Jesus. Oh, the blindness of sin, the ignorance of the sinner. They, they even affirm the fact that healing of the lame man was a sign that authenticated the message of Peter, or of Christ through Peter. Look at verses 16 and 17. They say, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign, that's the healing of the lame men, remember we talked about last week, it was a sign, has been performed through them. It's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further, they're like, look, we agree that something amazing has happened as a sign of confirmation. But in order to keep this message from spreading any further, we must silence them. Listen, the world is not lost due to insufficient testimony. The world is not rejecting Jesus due to insufficient testimony. The world is not persecuting believers due to insufficient testimony. The, the, the testimony of Christ is sufficient. And His testimony has been confirmed now for 2,000 years. It's clear. But they, 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 they deny Him. Why is that? Well, we're told why that is. As the story progresses, Peter and John are released from prison and they go back home. Look at verse 23. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends. I love, it. The, fa I love the fact that, that, that they're called friends here. This is a reference, of course, to the church. But the church is not just an organization. We are an organization. We're not just an institution. We are an institution. But here, what we're called is friends. And don't you understand how important it is in a time when the world is heating up against Christ? in a time of hostility, in a time of persecution, that we must be friends. We must be a community of support and a community of love for one another, not just co-attendees on Sunday mornings. Well, they go to their friends, and what do they do in the face of persecution? They pray. Let me, let me look at their prayer really quick. Verse 24. It says, When they heard it, they lifted their voices together, and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, everything in them, who, who through the mouth of your David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, now they quote Psalm 2, why do the Gentiles rage? The people plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They begin their prayer theologically. 
This is the theological basis for where persecution comes from. It's the fact that the kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth, a.k.a. those with any amount of power, have set themselves against the Lord and His anointed. Dual meanings. Anointed would first be Christ, and I think the second meaning would be His believers. All through whom the Lord proclaims. The world is dead set against God. Again, where the world hates Jesus, the world will hate you. And then they remember in verse 27, for truly, I mean, look what happened. In this very city, they crucified Jesus. And so what do they do? In verse 29, how do they pray? They don't pray for popularity. They don't pray for acceptance. What do they pray for in verse 29? It says, Grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all, what's the word? Boldness. God, don't give us popularity. Don't just make the world accept us. In your sovereignty as things heat up against us, God, would you give us boldness. Should not that be our prayer today? That we might, in the face of persecution, in the face of rejection, have bold loyalty. The problem for us is this, is that we so often organize our lives around the concept of safety. The problem is that we have bought into this idea that we can organize our lives around safety. We've bought this American dream mentality, and we've mixed the American dream with our Christianity, and we say our greatest goal in life is to have nice things and to live a long, safe life. And as a result, we fear Anything that could threaten our goods, that could threaten our safety, that could threaten our lives. Church, let me say this. Your greatest problem is not persecution, but fear. We are to have, as Christians, no fear. Amen. No fear. Do not be afraid. Peter and John stand here before Annas and Caiaphas with zero fear. Look at their response in verse 20. They say, in, in, in the face of the command, do not speak anymore about this man. Stop talking about Jesus. They say in verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. There's a double negative there in the Greek, which, which is just to emphasize the no. No, we cannot stop speaking about Jesus. No fear. Utter loyalty, bold loyalty to Jesus Christ. What drives bold Loyalty, it's not popular, acceptance, but it's Jesus. 
What drives bold loyalty? It's not pluralistic approval, but Jesus. Not polished academics, but Jesus. Not pleasing authorities, but Jesus. Where does their bold loyalty come from? Number one, not popular acceptance, but Jesus. Look at verse 11. Before I read, as we've been through a presidential election, we are reminded that uh, in this democracy that we live in, our leaders come through the polls. They come through a popular vote. They come through popular opinion. And I, I guess I could just say this. God doesn't need popular opinion to be God. The high priest asks, who, by, in whose name did you do this work? Did you do this miracle? In verse 11, they respond, they say, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Back up to verse 10, actually. Let me point something out. Let it be known to you and all the people that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, Looking at Annas and Caiaphas, you put him to death. You crucified him. You rejected him. But look, Jesus doesn't need the vote of the high priest in order to be the Messiah. Jesus doesn't need popular acceptance to be the ruler. Jesus doesn't need a vote to be Savior. Jesus does not need pop, uh, public approval to be King but rather the stone that they rejected has become the cornerstone, the most valuable stone, the precious stone on which the entire house is built. Back in the day when I used to work at Carter Lumber, a lumber yard, the, the builders would come in and they would look at the two-by-fours and the, the two-by-sixes and they'd be trying to find those straight, nice, straight, uh, uh, um, what do you call them, boards? pieces of wood. It's been a while. Right? I'm not a builder. And, uh, you know, we, we end up with, these, with this discard pile of bent two-by-fours that can't be used and are good for nothing but the fire. The picture here is that the builders come in and they're looking at the stones and they're trying to find the stones to build the house with. Jesus doesn't make it. He doesn't make the cut. He doesn't even make the cut to be part of the house. They throw that stone out and they say, he's got nothing to do with us. Rejected, utterly rejected by man. But Jesus doesn't need man to accept him in order for Jesus to be Lord. You see what I'm saying? And so God took the stone that the builders rejected and said, no, he's going to be the most precious stone in the whole house. It was actually... Irony, through the rejection that God glorified His Son. Through Jesus being put on the cross, God put the sins of the world on Christ and He was hung in shame and in glory. As He died on the cross for your sins, and all who call on His name shall be saved. He is the precious stone, the most valuable piece in your life. Build your whole life on Christ. All other ground is sinking sand. 
All other ground is sinking sand. Is Jesus enough for you? Are you building your life on this precious stone? Where does this bold loyalty come from? It's not through popular acceptance, but it's through Jesus. The things that the world rejects, God uses. The discard of society, God glorifies. It doesn't matter if the world rejects you. God has chosen you. And you are in Christ. And in Christ you are more beautiful than you can ever imagine. You have God's acceptance. Is that not enough? Secondly, bold loyalty does not come from pluralistic approval. But Jesus. I think the story in John chapter 6 Jesus says some things that make people upset. He was known to do that. And after he says these things, in John chapter 6, a number of his followers, most of his followers, begin to leave him. They turn their backs on him. They say, we're no longer going to follow you. And Jesus looks at his his disciples and he says, hey, are are you too going to turn, turn away? Are you too going to leave me? Peter, who was known to respond quickly, spoke up in John chapter 6, and Peter said, Lord, where are we going to go? For you have the words of eternal life. Look, what drives bold loyalty? It's this question slash statement, where else am I going to go? I've searched all over. Couldn't find nobody. I searched high and low, and I still couldn't find nobody. Nobody greater. Nobody greater. Nobody greater than you. If Jesus means torture, then bring on the torture, because where else am I going to go? If Jesus means death, then bring on my death, because where else am I going to go? Now, the pluralist can't say this. A pluralist is somebody who believes that all roads lead to God. That all religions are essentially equal and it doesn't matter how you live or what you believe that you will somehow find your way to God. Look at verse 12. It says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Don't you see here that what what gives them bold loyalty is not pluralism. What gives them bold loyalty is not believing that all roads lead to God. What gives Peter and John bold loyalty is what we would call theologically the exclusivity of Christ. Well, and it's also that doctrine that can bring on persecution at times. The exclusivity of Christ. It's not our job to just go around and bash world uh, religions and founders of world religions, but it is our job to say that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other religion that saves Any religion that is not founded on the exclusivity of Christ is ultimately a false religion. 
There is no salvation in anyone else. No other name. Oh, but listen, Jesus only is not bad news. It's actually good news. Because this means, church, that you don't got to go looking for a name. You don't got to go find somebody to gain their approval in order for you to be okay. I heard someone say one time that they walk out their door and every face they see is another person of whose approval they need to win. And they go through their entire day as a rat race, always trying to people please. If only there was a name that superseded all names. If only there was one who could give me a cosmic thumbs up, who could give me a cosmic approval, then I would be freed from this rat race. Oh, church, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Who are you trying to please when God is pleased with you? It's good news, not bad news. This is not a message of judgment, but a message of salvation. Notice he says, there is salvation in no one else. He doesn't say there is judgment in no one else. He doesn't come with a message of judgment for Annas and for Caiaphas, but he comes with a message of salvation. Oh, they're already under judgment. That's a given. You're already under judgment. That's a given. What Jesus brings is not a message of judgment, but of life. The hope that your sins can be forgiven, that judgment can be taken by Jesus himself, and that you can be made right before God. Even Annas and Caiaphas are offered this message. This is an offering to them that Jesus, whom you crucified, can become your salvation. Sinner, don't you know that there is no sin that Christ cannot cover? There is nothing that you can do that would keep you from being able to be saved by Jesus Christ. Well, except for one, rejecting Jesus Christ. Come to Christ now. Receive Him. You're not too far away. You haven't done too much bad in your life in order to come to Jesus and to receive the hope. If Annas can come to Jesus, if Caiaphas can come to Jesus, then church, you can come to Jesus. Well, of course, the tragedy is, is that they don't and they continue to persecute the believers. They go on. And as they're trying to understand where Peter and John get this boldness from, they observe them. Verse 13, they say, it says, when they saw that the boldness of uh, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated and common men. Pause. Number three, bold loyalty does not come from polished academics, but Jesus. You don't need another degree in order to get bold loyalty before Jesus. You don't need more training in order to have bold loyalty in Jesus. Some years ago, I, I read a story of a woman that was sitting in a bar and she was listening to this debate between 
an atheist uh, college professor and some Christian intellectuals. And they're going back and forth about Jesus. And she doesn't understand half the words that are being said, but she's listening in on the conversation. Then the atheist college professor finds himself outside having a smoke, and she joins him. And while they're out there, she says, Look, I don't know half of what you guys were talking about, and I don't know how to say this, but I know Jesus. And through tears, she proceeded to tell him the gospel of Jesus Christ and how Jesus touched her life. And as the story goes on, he was converted through her testimony. An uneducated, common individual. Bold loyalty does not come through polished academics. They look at these men and they're like, they're uneducated. They're common. Like, don't you realize that the church was not built on PhDs? The church was not built on seminary-trained individuals. The church was not built on uh, uh, people who had professional uh, speech training. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it never says don't get training, don't get education, but that's not where we find our power. You see, it's not found in being eloquent. It's not found in having big words. It's not found in polished academics, but it's found in Jesus. These guys were high school dropouts. They lacked opportunity. They'd never been given a chance. But look at verse 13. It says, it says that they were astonished with these men, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Where does bold loyalty come from? They have been with Jesus. Look, if a Christian lacks boldness, it's not because of a lack of education. If a Christian lacks loyalty to Jesus, it's not because of a lack of education. If a Christian lacks confidence before man, it's not because of a lack of education. If you lack bold loyalty, go to Jesus. For the one who cannot stand in persecution, let him go to Jesus. Let it be clearly seen that you have been with Jesus. Fight for time in His Word. Meditate on His Scriptures. Spend time in prayer. Spend time intentionally with His people. Enjoy being in the presence of God. Be with Jesus. And that's where the bold loyalty comes from. To stand against the evil day. Lastly, bold loyalty comes not through pleasing authorities, but Jesus. In verse 19, uh, the court warns Peter and John. They respond. They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. With all that we've said this morning, Peter and John have just come to the realization that they would rather please God than man. As one pastor I know in Indianapolis says, he says, uh, when you don't know who to please, just please Jesus. And let Jesus determine who your friends are. How do we stand 
in that day. We have to stand with the same kind of conviction that these men had, that I need to please God rather than man. I cannot go out trying to please all of the authorities of the day. I need to please God, not man. Peter and John are released here because of the people, it says. Because they've got popular approval in this moment from the people. But that's going to change. It's going to turn up hotter and hotter for them. Both Peter and John will be, within the next couple decades, they will be murdered for their faith. And on that day, when their life is taken from them for Jesus, this same conviction will hold them that I've got to please God, not man. Even if that means, right now, the fire, the cross, my death. Do not please authorities but Jesus. Let me close with two questions for your consideration. Number one, is your greatest tribulation in this world losing something? Loss, fear. Is your greatest fear in this world that bad news is going to come? Secondly, is your greatest goal in this world safety? To protect yourself and your loved ones from anything bad ever happening. Have you bought into this idea that that we can actually create a safe life for ourselves if we have the right car, with the right seatbelts, with the right house, with the right neighborhood, with the right, you name it. Church, safety is an illusion. It's an illusion that the marketers have sold us. Jesus says, in this world, trials and tribulations will come. Don't be stupid, all right? But be willing to, be willing to take risks for Jesus. Don't organize your lives around fear. But organize your lives around obedience to Jesus. Come what may. Come what may. Striving for acceptance and safety in this world will never prepare you to suffer for Jesus. It's been said that a clay pot pot in the sun will always be a clay pot until the white heat of the furnace hits it. Only then will it become porcelain. It's in that refiner's fire that we are made perfect. It's in that refiner's fire that we become porcelain. That our faith is refined in Jesus Christ. And it's in Him then that we find safety, not in this world. I read a story of a little Shih Tzu dog, a 12-pound dog. The owner was walking this dog down the street, and the dog sees two bigger dogs, and immediately the little dog stopped in its tracks and started shaking. The owner then picks up the little 12-pound dog, and the owner said that when she picked up her dog, the dog started barking at these two bigger dogs as if it was trying to pick a fight. Look, don't you know that when you are in the arms of your owner, there is no enemy that seems too big? 
When you are in the arms of your owner, the idea of pursuing your safety is just no longer on your mind because your owner's got you. When you're in the arms of your owner, there is no real threat for your life. You are safe. You have nothing to lose. And you say, well, well, the world, what, what could the world do to me? The world could kill me. And I say, yes, but Jesus raises the dead. You are safe in the arms of your owner. So therefore, no fear in life. No fear in, uh, in death. This is the power of Christ in me. So church, I'm just happy to be in the arms of my owner. I'm happy to be in the arms of Christ. And so therefore, I can boldly witness for Jesus. Therefore, I can take risk for Jesus. Yes, I don't know about tomorrow, but I know who holds tomorrow. And I know who holds my hand. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You that Jesus is enough for us. We pray, God, that as we go into this world, that we would organize our, li- our lives not around preservation in this world, but around Jesus, come what may. And God, if the subtle persecutions come, I pray that we would stand strong. And if the subtle persecutions turn into open persecutions, I pray, God, that you would give us the bold loyalty, grant us boldness. It's in Jesus' name, in in the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.